the 11th of December, 2020. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, difficult RA and how you might, in fact, define it. Second, we're going to talk about, hold on to your hat, Lyme disease guidelines, really? Finally? I know you're waiting for them. And lastly, isn't it a great thing when you can sort of disprove an authoritative source. We're going to do that, taking aim at the dermatologist. At the top, we're going to begin with our friends in Taiwan who did a great study that was published in Arthritis and Rheumatology. And this study looked at who gets RA, how often, what it costs, and what it does to life expectancy. So in this particular claims-based analysis from the Taiwanese um, uh, health database, they looked at new cases of RA after 2003 until 2016. Now, 2003, I want you to note, is sort of the beginning or early on in uh, the biologic therapy era. So maybe anything that they note in this time frame could be attributable to new therapies. Maybe, maybe not. What they did look at was the frequency of developing RA in a year-by-year way, looking at males and females, and they showed over time RA is becoming less frequent as the incidence rate has dropped reasonably and obviously, if you look at the numbers, uh, and, and I would encourage you to do so. Uh, and I think that does mirror some of the other observations out there that maybe RA is getting less frequent in recent years and maybe becoming more mild. But specifically, they looked at life expectancy. Turns out that once you're diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, the average time that you would live is 26.3 years. It was different between men and women, but on average, 26.3 years. More importantly, that RA patients were going to live a total of 4.97 or five years less than that expected of the same age group. And that's important because historically it's been said that RA patients, once diagnosed, have a shortened survival, anywhere between 8 and 11 years. So this observation of being only 4.97 suggests, well, gee, maybe things are changing, maybe things are getting better. They estimated the lifetime cost of managing RA is $72,000. They must not be on biologics in, in Taiwan, where it would be a lot more. That might be one year's expenditure, but nonetheless... That's what they put as the cost of disease. Uh, and then, again, they, they are wondering whether or not that um, number of um, loss of life expectancy only being 4.97 is an improvement over what we've seen historically. I think this is an important paper. Uh, talking about RA, uh, how do you define difficult RA? Well, we talked about that in one of our reports from a few weeks ago. Uh, ULAR is looking at difficult RA. Uh, and I think that it's an important topic. We all have these patients. Um, we're all looking for the next best therapy for, the, for them. Well, this particular study, coming from arthritis um, research and therapy, looked at the patients who were multiple DMARD refractory or multiple DMARD failure patients. Of their cohort of 402 patients, 10% met this definition of being uh, multi-DMARD refractory. And maybe that's a nice definition. It's actually one of the definitions ULAR uses. 10% uh, of your patients are, could be called refractory RA or difficult RA. They compared that to patients who achieved remission 
for a low disease activity state, that turned out to be 18%. So when trying to define or who may become a difficult RA patient, they came up with these variables that were predictive and significantly so in multivariate analysis. So one being having erosions, two, younger age, three, a high baseline DASH 28 score, and lastly, and maybe more importantly, and having the greatest predictive value, was the delta DASH less than 1.2 at six months, meaning you start your first DMARD within six months. If it's a success, you should certainly be able to lower your DASH score by greater than 1.2. That's been in many papers. But not achieving that in the first six months really sets you up to become a refractory RA patient with an odds ratio of 11.1, meaning that you're far more likely to do this again with your next DMARD and the next DMARD and the next DMARD. I think this is an important paper that helps to define difficult and refractory RA. Good news is coming out of the EMA. As you know, that's the FDA equivalent in Europe. Their division, sort of like our advisory board, CHMP, has recommended upadacitinib, also called Rinvoke, for the treatment of uh, psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis in adults with active disease. This is a recommendation from this advisory council. Now the EMA will make up their mind, and like the FDA, they usually take that recommendation and make that uh, a true indication. Uh, again, it's, again, the JAK inhibitors are doing very well in disease outside of RA. Actually, this week, Upadacitinib had um, a press release on their reports of phase three results in an ulcerative colitis trial showing it worked very well as well. So again, uh, JAK inhibitors and UP are doing well. In the area of new therapies, you know, where we need new therapies more than anything, osteoarthritis. That's a real unmet need. And there are trials going on. Facinumab is a, one of these new nerve growth factor inhibitors that's been studied in multiple scenarios of osteoarthritis. Not inflammatory osteoarthritis, nothing works there. But in osteoarthritis of the hip or knee or osteoarthritis of the hand, uh, I believe they have trials to show that they work. One of the big concerns, however, is by knocking out nerve perception of, neural perception of pain, that patients with advanced osteoarthritis of the hip or knee may develop rapid progression of damage and degeneration that leads to a sooner than expected joint replacement surgery. So, so more or less like a Charcot joint, if you will. And that could happen when you use this drug even for other indications like this study, which I'm reporting on, which is a study of chronic low back pain. And in this study, it worked. It worked usually, um, it worked a lot of patients, but it worked best and significantly so at the higher dose, which was nine milligrams given every uh, four or every eight weeks. Uh, they had lower doses that didn't work as well. Um, they had their optimal responses by week 16. And again, this was a study of patients with chronic refractory low back pain. They did see in a minority of patients this um, adverse finding of rapid osteoarthritis progression in 3.8% of those patients on facinumab and only 0.7% who were on placebo. Lyme disease. You know, there's no Lyme disease in Texas. There's no Lyme disease in, in a lot of states. You know, we, you have to have, for Lyme disease, you have to be an endemic area. But in, in endemic areas um, and surrounding those endemic areas, Lyme disease continues to be a challenge for many of us. There are new Lyme disease guidelines that were just published, and you can find the link on our, on our report. Um, this gui these guidelines are cooperative effort of three different societies, the uh, IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of America, 
the ACR, the American College of Rheumatology, and the, um, the Neurology Society. I think it's the AAN uh, is a neurology society. And they come up with guidelines for the prevention, testing, and treatment of Lyme disease. It's a good set of, uh, of guidelines. There's a lot of them. They, they answer, um, they present guidelines in the context of questions that are clinical. You should read it and look at it if you're so inclined. Um, I'll talk about a few of them. These guidelines, by the way, come from 36 experts in the field that included three patients on their guideline committee that used grade um, technology to develop their guidelines. First issue is, um, what about removing the tick? Do you remove the tick? Do you get it tested? Do you show that it's a, an Exotis Domini or Borrelia burgdorferi tick? And the, they say, no, you don't need to do it. You can remove the tick and you could send it for analysis if you want. But the bottom line of identifying a tick that's got Borrelia burgdorferi in it turns out to not have any predictive value in whether someone's going to develop infection or not. Next, should you do testing in asymptomatic individuals who in fact have had a tick bite? And they do recommend against testing of asymptomatic individuals uh, overall. And that's a strong recommendation based on moderate quality evidence. What about prophylactic um, therapy for people who um, are, have a tick bite um, and you're worried about they you know, might get Lyme disease? Well, in general, they're against it unless it's a high-risk tick bite. High-risk tick bites, what's that? Is that a bigger tick? Is that a tick from space? Is that killer Exotis Domini ticks? Well, they define a, a, a high-risk tick bite if it, if it involves the Exotis species as a vector. How are you going to know that unless you do testing for it? And they're not recommending testing, but maybe you know because you can look at them and tell. I, I can't. B, if it occurs in an endemic area, this is most important. Um, and C, if the tick was attached for 36 hours or more. Um, in those situations, prophylactic antibiotics may be uh, useful. Um, lastly, uh, what about testing? They do, if you have Lyme, if you think you may have Lyme arthritis, they first recommend serum antibody testing over PCR testing because it's the good screening procedure. You'll uh, eliminate a lot of them. We know about the inaccuracies of serologic testing. Um, if you have a positive serology, then do PCR, but only do PCR on tissue, meaning synovial fluid, or other involved tissues to see if it's positive for the uh, Borrelia species. Um, and therefore, that would be better presumptive evidence of active infection that may require therapy. I found these interesting, even though I live in a non-endemic area, you might find them interesting too. So... Dermatologists, you know, they got a lot of rules. Like, sure, they got a lot of names named after the people who found it. So we don't have so much of that in rheumatology. Uh, you know, I, there's no Ziff disease. There's no um, Ted Harris disease. There's no Jack Cush disease. Um, maybe that's why we're different than dermatologists. But um, one of the rules in dermatology is you don't give patients with psoriasis steroids. Because why? Well, when you stop the steroids, they're going to have a big old flare, and it's going to be a gigantic mess and that you're going to say, I should never have given this person steroids. You know, we in rheumatology sometimes give, I do at least, give my psoriatic arthritis patients steroids, and I have not noticed a big flare phenomenon. Well, a dermatology group has published this. I think it was in Al's Rheumatic Disease. 1970 psoriasis patients, this is a dermatology study, psoriasis patients, who were also given 
systemic corticosteroids by injection, by mouth, they found a flare rate, a psoriasis flare rate of 1.4%. Not much. So much so that we could almost say that that dictum, that observational authoritative opinion uh, is probably worth nothing. Of those patients who did flare, there was only one erythrodermic flare. There were no pustular psoriasis flares. Bottom line is, I'm not advocating for a lot of steroid use, but I wouldn't worry about it in the future, is what I would say, based on my experience, but really based on this report that I'm giving to you. Next uh, is the SELECT PSA2 trial. We talked about this during ACR last month. This is a study of upadacitinib in active psoriatic arthritis patients. It was pu recently published, is now in print. This is a phase three study of 642 patients who received either placebo or upadacitinib of 15 or 30 milligrams for up to 24 weeks. The primary endpoint was at week 12. The skin endpoint was at week 16, primary endpoint being ACR20. And at week 12, there were, as you would guess, more significantly greater ACR20 responses on 15 and 30, and I think that was 57 and 64% compared to 24% on placebo. Highly significant at week 12, and those significant numbers stayed significant out to week 24, uh, where that and other uh, secondary endpoints remained highly significant over placebo, including minimal disease activity, which at week 24 was 25 and 29% on uh, UPA and only 2.8% on placebo. Lastly, the skin responses measured by POSI 75 at week, 17, week 16 was significant, about 55% when you receive UPA versus 15% on placebo. Again, that looks good. Uh, Rachel Tate wrote a nice article this week about the new ACIP recommendations for who should receive the new Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. The ACIP is a division and activity of the CDC that comes up with immunization guidelines and that committee um, considered this question as to who should get what when. Uh, and they said that the first wave of vaccine should go, as you would imagine, first to uh, frontline healthcare workers, and then secondly to elderly individuals who are living in long-term long uh, healthcare facilities. Uh, they estimate these numbers to be about 21 million healthcare workers are, uh, are be the, uh, should be the ones who receive it. So because you're a doctor doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get it. You need to show that you're, uh, I guess, someone who is uh, a frontline person, uh, and then 3 million people who are in long-term facilities. Uh, as you know, the FDA um, met this week and considered the approval of the Pfizer vaccine, and it looks like they have approved it by vote. The FDA has not come out with that formal um, wording. It's expected it could happen any day now. So I don't know about you, but this is what I'm discussing with my patients. They want to know, should I get this and whatnot? And we say, yes, I say, yes. Get the flu vaccine, number one, to get that out of the way so as not to confuse it with infection or medical illness possibly caused by COVID-19. Second, when COVID-19 becomes available, when are you eligible? Well, if you're not in a, in a nursing home and you're not a frontline worker, you're going to be in the third or fourth phase. And the question is whether or not they're high risk or immunosuppressed. You can tell your patients they're high risk. I told my patients, claim that you're high risk because you have lupus or because you have psoriatic arthritis or what or whatever and you're taking a biologic but i tell my patients you're not at high risk and you're not on immunosuppressives 
if they have a disease, an autoimmune disease or an inflammatory arthropathy that's uncontrolled, yes, they're at high risk. But their disease per se is not a risk factor, and that's what all our data has showed so far. Uncontrolled disease is a risk factor. And our therapies, not so much. They're not immunosuppressive as much as they're anti-inflammatory. So again, your patient can make a play and you can back them up so they can get maybe the vaccine sooner. But honestly, they're not going to be high on the hit list of who's going to get this vaccine first line. Lastly, I want to end with um, a word of advice to all of you who take care of patients. I tweeted something this week because I don't think we as clinicians, as rheumatologists, have done an adequate job in educating our patients about how to handle this whole COVID-19 thing. We're waiting for them to come in and then we're answering their questions. But I think we're ignoring that there's a large number of people who haven't come in and don't know what you think and probably do need to know. First of all, they need to come to their appointments, uh, meaning that you know the, the true scary part of March and April are over. Uh, doctor's offices are incredibly safe. You know, there's distancing. All the precautions are being followed. My patients are not gathering or congregating in a waiting room. They come in and they're passed through and they go right into an exam room, uh, only one patient at a time. I only let, you know, a patient and a caregiver come in if it's an elderly person or someone who really needs help. And I still practice distancing and masking with them. Um, when I'm in the room with a patient, uh, I don't actually touch them unless I have to touch them, and I do meaning I, I've got goggles on, I got my mask, I put on my gloves. If I have to do a joint exam, I will. Otherwise, I'm doing my video joint exam, which you can see on Room Now or on YouTube, and that works just as well, um, but we're still having face-to-face -face visits where you can actually see them walk in, see whether or not they have a rash, see whether or not they're truly in pain, etc. Secondly, you should be telling your patients, get your tests, get your routine things. Go to your annual PCP visit, get your DEXA, get your eye exam, get the things you need to know. They're afraid to go to everything uh, and everywhere, but especially to medical facilities where they think that's where all the sick people are congregating. For instance, my patients who are pregnant and about to deliver, they're wigging out right now thinking that I'm going to have to go to a hospital and deliver a baby amongst all that COVID. And I tell them, no, you're incredibly safe if you go and have your baby delivered at the hospital because you're nowhere near the COVID people. And they have all these precautions in place in clinics, at hospitals, in phlebotomy uh, labs like Questin LabCorp. You got to encourage them to go because the consequences of avoiding healthcare, we're going to find out, are going to be disastrous. So please encourage your patients to come to their visits, to make their appointments outside of rheumatology. It's really in their best interest. Lastly, I want to remind you to go to Backtalk, click on the website or on the email. You can leave your comments, hot sports opinions, cases, and we'll discuss them in future episodes of this podcast. I really want to elicit your input on um, an article I have to write in the next few weeks, which is the year in review, 2020 in rheumatology. What was the biggest, hottest thing? What was the greatest advance? I know, you know I'm going to write about COVID and say something about that, but we want to know what the real advances were. I mean, that's, I think, what this whole article and exercise is about. You want to have some input, please go to Backtalk and leave me your comments. Lastly, look for the link uh, uh, for Room Now Live 2021. It's going to be an on-site and virtual meeting, on-site in Fort Worth, virtual in your living room. Uh, you can sign up for it uh, and register now. Uh, we're expecting a great faculty. We'll talk more about that in the future. Take care. Have a great week. Bye-bye.